Greetings. It's so good to be with you today, albeit digitally, and it's so wonderful to be able to greet brothers and sisters in Christ and to open God's Word with you today. We're closing out our three-part series uh, looking at a small portion of Jesus' amazing best sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And uh, last week, we heard that Jesus' entry into his kingdom, that entry into Jesus' kingdom requires us to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees were very righteous. They were the most learned, the most committed, the most zealous people around. They prayed, they learned scripture by memory, they gave 10% of their money and and 10% of everything else, including herbs and spices. No one in their own strength could be more dedicated and righteous than them. But we saw that disciples of Jesus are, in fact, more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees because Jesus' perfect life counts for us. Isn't that wonderful news? Well, this week, further into the Sermon on the Mount, we listened to Jesus tell us about interpreting and applying the Old Testament teaching correctly. And we'll see that the appearance of godliness is not enough. We need true life transformation. The Pharisees and the others had a wonderful appearance of holiness and apparent godliness on the surface. But underneath, they needed a deep cleanse. It's this deep cleanse and true life transformation that is signified and visibly enacted in baptism. And today at Perigian, uh, we're baptizing Chris. And it's going to be a wonderful celebration of this transformation that God brings to us. In the baptism promises, uh, Chris will say, I turn to Christ. And it's when we focus our attention on Christ Jesus, finding our satisfaction in him, that the, the allure and the, the temptation of sin is diminished. And so Chris will say he turns to Christ. And then after seeing the love and the wonder, the beauty, the glory, the holiness and truth of Christ, then Chris and all of us notice that we don't naturally overflow with all of those characteristics ourselves. We don't naturally overflow with the love, wonder, beauty, glory, and holiness of God ourselves. And so that brings us to repentance. So Chris will say, I repent of my sins. And that means turning away from sin, not seeking satisfaction and pleasure outside of God and the good gifts that he gives us. In baptism, people show they are surrendering their old life to God, dying to themselves and being raised to new life in positive, healthy, good relationship with God. Followers of Jesus are to live that new life, continually turning from sin and pursuing God. The measures that Jesus calls us to in today's passage are To flee from sin, these methods, these measures seem 
absolutely extreme. They seem radical. But do notice, Jesus is not abolishing the law. Rather, he intensifies it. He takes the law to a deeper level where the God of the law can come in and change our hearts and lives. So we are to flee from sin and pursue Jesus. We are safe with him. I'm sure you've all been to the hardware store and in the hardware store, there's a whole section of the store that's dedicated to preventing injury, to safety. Uh, There's safety goggles, earmuffs, breathing filters, gloves, steel cap boots and so on. If you're about to undertake a dangerous job, then you don't just ignore these aisles of safety gear at the hardware store. You, You stock up and you make sure the gloves fit. You wear the appropriate protective gear. Or you might even call in a professional, flee from the job yourself and let the professional do it. In the same way, we don't toy with sin. We don't play with something as dangerous as sin. And so we take as much precaution as we can. And we even flee from it if we need to. In his sermon, Jesus takes common sayings of the time, teaching from the Old Testament and teachings that grew up around the Old Testament. And he clarifies God's core message, taking it to the next level, intensifying it. And today we'll look at a saying about murder and we'll let Jesus take us to the core of the problem. Jesus gave us a name for the sin that we are to flee from. He gave us the consequence of not fleeing from it. And he gave us the wise path that we should take instead. This in no way negates the message of God's grace. Our efforts to live rightly and to flee from sin are our response to God's great love, mercy and forgiveness. We try to live wisely and godly lives because God has made us his friends. We aim for purity and godly living because God has declared us to be righteous. So let's start with a bit of a question. Do you think there's anything more important than worshipping God? Or put another way, um, when does God not want you to worship him together with his people in the church. Well, verse 23 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus says that reconciliation with your brothers and sisters is more important than offering a gift at the temple. In chapter 4, verse 25, we're told uh, the people who were listening to Jesus were the large crowds of people from around Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan. So let's just take one of those places, Galilee. And imagine a a listener to Jesus from Galilee. 
Galilee was about three days' travel from the temple where the sacrifices would be offered. And so if you picture it, as Jesus says, this person from Galilee has to travel for three days to get to the temple. And then just as they're about to offer their gift to God in the temple, then they remember, oh, such and such back home has something against me. I've hurt him. I've let her down. I've uh, gone against them in some way. And so I'm not to give my gift at the, at the altar. I need to put it down. I need to travel for three days back to Galilee, apologize, spend the time necessary to make amends, to be reconciled with them, and then travel for another three days back to the temple. I can pick up my gift. I can resume offering my gift to God. That's at least six days delay, six days of effort and energy that are put into reconciling with someone. To do that is a big commitment. Imagine today stopping on your way up to communion and then spending six or more days making amends, being reconciled with someone and only then considering yourself ready for communion the next week. In our three gatherings, we have three different practices when it comes to communion. Sunshine Beach have communion most weeks. Tawanton have communion fortnightly, twice a month. And Perigian have communion once a month. The practice has varied across all churches throughout the years. While the reformer John Calvin preferred communion more frequently, the practice at his time was communion four times a year. Now, the Bible doesn't make clear a case for the frequency of communion. It simply tells us that as often as we do it, we are to eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus. For many years in the Anglican Church, morning and evening prayer were daily occurrences, but communion was much less frequent. What was clear in the Anglican prayer book was that the priest would tell people, warning them beforehand of the date for the next communion service. And he would urge them to prepare for it beforehand. In the preface to communion service in the Book of Common Prayer, it says that you need to tell the minister if you intend on joining in with communion. So if someone had done wrong against his neighbour, then the minister should deny him communion. If he were to repent and make right, it says, his naughty life, then he can be admitted to communion. And if there are people who were at odds with each other, they needed to be at peace before they could have communion. Today, our times of of greeting and, and sharing God's peace together in the middle of the service, they're not just about um, shaking hands, greeting your mates, giving people a hug or a fist bump. It's not just about starting a conversation that you can pick up later over morning tea. It is a symbolic um, action of being at peace with each other and at peace with all people, with loving our neighbours. You see, Jesus 
and the Anglican Church consider reconciliation with others as perhaps even more important than worship in the temple or at church. So I won't blame you and we won't judge you if you need to walk out now and go and make peace with someone. It's actually really important. Alternatively, you could wait until the next song and, um, oh, something's come up, I need to go and just slip out inconspicuously. But in all seriousness, we need to be committed to reconciliation. Jesus was so committed to reconciliation that he paid the price with his blood on the cross for all of us to be reconciled to God. We must be committed to reconciliation. I recently heard a story of two brothers. They lived on adjoining farms, uh, but they'd had a deep disagreement some years ago. They'd often shared resources in the past, but that practice had stopped. And there was nothing left there but bitterness. One morning, a brother called Paul answered a knock at his door, and it was a carpenter, a carpenter who was looking for some work. And Paul decided, yes, there's something he could do. So he took him out to where the two properties met, and he showed him how his other brother had taken a bulldozer and created a creek uh, where the meadow used to be. Paul said, I know he did this to make me angry. I want you to help me get even at him by building a big fence so that I won't have to see him or his property ever again. Well, Paul went off, did other work on the farm, and the carpenter set to work. He worked hard all day, and he reported back to Paul at the end of the day, and Paul had a look, and there was no fence. In fact, the carpenter had used his skills to build a bridge over the creek instead of a fence. Now... On the other farm, Paul's brother had noticed something was going on. And he thought, what's happening? It looks like Paul has commissioned this carpenter to build a bridge over the creek. And so Paul's brother began to make his way closer and closer. And Paul then went outside. He went over and they met each other on the bridge. And after all of this heartache, they were reconciled well the carpenter came along and he was packing up his tools and Paul and his brother said stop we can find more work for you to do and he said sorry I've got other bridges to build does Jesus the carpenter have a bridge to build in your life is there someone that you need to make peace with We must be committed to reconciliation. And we need to be committed to keeping relationships healthy. Jesus took the command not to murder to the nth degree. He showed that God's original intention behind the command not to murder was for us to not be consumed with hatred. Hatred or unrighteous anger is like the seedling that can grow into physically harming or even murdering others. He calls us to flee so far from that sin of murder that we don't even get angry with someone in an unrighteous way. 
so we can steer clear of our anger, of our frustration, by realizing its importance and seeking reconciliation. That's the wise path, keeping reconciliation at heart so that it doesn't come to the court case, the judge, the guard or the prison. Of course, I think it's very unlikely that you or I will feel we can relate closely to the thoughts and the feelings of a murderer. But Jesus wants us to ask the question, am I angry with someone in my heart? Today, is there somebody that I need to forgive? What is at the root of your frustration, your disappointment or anger? What is holding you back from forgiven, from being reconciled with someone? On reconciliation, Paul teaches in Romans 12, verse 18, If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. So I'm not saying that you need to be a doormat. And you need to allow anyone to do whatever they like, that they can abuse you and you must forgive them, that you can put up with terrible treatment and forgive them endlessly. You can actually forgive someone and still choose not to spend much time with that person. As far as it depends on you, make peace. If you know that you will be hurt... You can and you should put healthy boundaries in place to keep you from being harmed again and again. But Jesus doesn't want you to be imprisoned or consumed by your own anger. See, anger can be like an explosive. It's a danger to the person that you're targeting it against. But it can just as easily harm you as you set the explosives, or innocent bystanders. Anger is dangerous. And Jesus wants us to be free from the dangers of anger and to thrive in life. And the truth is that Jesus doesn't just call us to flee from the sin of, of murder and hatred and anger. He calls us to flee from all sin, to flee from the sin of selfishness, we may be being selfish if we are just holding on to good, the good news of Jesus to ourselves and not sharing it. He wants us to flee from the sin of abusing this earth that God has entrusted to us. And from the sin of gossip, Jesus calls us to flee from all sin. So spend a moment now in honesty before God and allow him to speak to you. Let him whisper into your heart what it is he wants you to flee from and make a commitment to turn away from that sin and turn to God. We are to flee from sin and pursue God because that is who we are now. Two weeks ago, Jesus told us that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. He didn't say, if you try really, really hard, then you could be the salt of the earth. And he didn't say, if you work at it with all your might, then you can shine as a light. 
He's made a declaration. That is who we are. That is our new identity. And we now have the privilege of living out that new identity. In other words, Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross. And we are now people who pursue God. Who live this new life that he's given us with gratitude to God. And that's also what's signified in Chris's baptism today. As he's submerged under the water, it's like the old life is buried with Christ in his death. And as he emerges from the water, it's like being born again to a new life, a life reconciled with God and with others. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he spoke of God who has made us to be uh, and what he's given us to do. He spoke of who God has made us to be and what he has given us to do. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He wrote, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you see the importance of not only our reconciliation with God, but of our ongoing ministry of reconciliation? This is, of course, not just a ministry of words. It isn't just mediating between people and helping them to be reconciled with each other. And it isn't just encouraging people to be reconciled with God. It's about who we are and the way we live as new creations in Christ. It's about the love that God gives us for all people and the way that we enjoy God ourselves. The author Madeleine Lengel said, Evangelism is not what we tell people unless... What we tell is totally consistent with who we are. It is who we are that is going to make the difference. If we do not truly enjoy our faith, nobody is going to catch the fire of enjoyment from us. If our lives are not totally centered on Christ, we will not be Christ bearers for others, no matter how pious our words. This ministry of reconciliation is more than you or I could do by ourselves. It requires that we continually pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray and we seek for God to have his way in our lives and in the world around us because this is not something that we can achieve on our own. We need God to fill us by his spirit and truly transform our lives, our attitudes, our hearts and minds. And that is exactly what God is doing in us day by day when we partner with him. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord, 
reign in me. Lord, reign in us. Have your way in our hearts and our lives, in our minds and in our attitudes. Help us to flee from anger and hatred and be filled with your love. Teach us to be committed to reconciliation, reconciliation with you and with one another. And empower us for this ministry of reconciliation that you've given to us. Holy Spirit, come, fill us to overflowing with your love and truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.